0: Hello SFIA Audio listeners, in this month's Nebula-exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream, Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. They say you need to dress for success. This applies particularly well to walking in space, where you and your spacesuit become one symbiotic entity. Today we'll be looking at spacesuits and extreme environment suits, along with improvements we'd like to make to them and the challenges we'd face in doing so. When you think about it, the historical driving force behind functional clothing is the need to protect ourselves to weather severe environments and deadly hazards, and to look good while doing so if possible. Whether it was harsh sun, freezing cold, sand in the wind, thorns on the ground, or spears coming at our torsos. Any problem we thought we could solve with a garment, we solved with a garment. The earliest get-ups we could reasonably call environmental suits would probably be the underwater salvage suits of the early 1700s, which were basically barrels with a window and sleeves. These evolved into true diving suits in the early 1800s, human-shaped suits of sealed canvas and leather with lead boots and brass helmets connected via hoses to a pressurized air supply on the surface. The first pressure suits, which were made to keep human bodies under enough pressure when the environment didn't, were products of high-altitude aviation programs of the 1930s, an alternative to pressurizing a plane's cockpit. These are the ancestors of spacesuits, modern firefighting gear draws heavily on spacesuit technology developed for the Apollo missions, and some of those technologies are even making their way into casual day-to-day use, like air-conditioned vests. Suits that would let you explore lethal environments like the depths of gas giants or the infernal surface of Venus are really environmental suits not spacesuits, but there's a long history of connection and feedback between development of the two. So you might say that spacesuits were developed for the vacuum, but not in one. At higher levels of technology the term spacesuit might get a bit vague too. As an example, if the general notion is to be able to feel like you're walking around normally at home, a telepresence into an android or even a mind upload into one is arguably achieving that goal far better than any suit could realistically permit. But it isn't really what we'd think of as a suit. Alternatively, going around in some non-humanoid vehicle, like a submarine or space shuttle, is obviously not a suit, but some large humanoid robot or mecha presumably isn't either, though something like an exoskeleton or power armor presumably is. For that matter, even a definition like a self-sufficient garment or closed system, while ideal, is not realistic. You either have a short deployment time or you need something feeding in air or electricity or fuel or so on, not to mention removing waste from the suit where you can't recycle it which for anything you are planning to spend many hours in is not going to just be exhaled carbon dioxide and moisture from your breath and skin. Toilet humor aside, there's no easy way of saying it, so let's dive right in. Going to the bathroom in a spacesuit is generally going to involve a diaper, as it currently does, or tubes being stuck places most folks would rather they were not. We've got some higher tech solutions for that we'll discuss in passing, but if you're curious, the sciency name for an adult diaper in a spacesuit is the MAG, Maximum Absorbency Garment, and we will not even discuss the early space era options which basically involved a bag worn under spandex, which is apparently exactly as unpleasant and disgusting as you're probably imagining. A spacesuit is generally considered to have a handful of primary functions it needs to perform and a few secondary ones. For the primary ones, it has to be able to supply breathable oxygen, which in practice means also having a method to remove carbon dioxide, though not necessarily. It has to be able to maintain a stable internal pressure, though not necessarily earth pressure. Suits leak and leakage is based on the difference in pressure on each side of the leak. Higher pressure means a faster leak, so we use partial pressure in spacesuits, usually with a high ratio of oxygen, whereas normal air is mostly nitrogen. Partial pressure requires a delay in adapting to it though, pre-breathing to get the nitrogen out of your blood, so you can't just jump in a suit and out an airlock. In an emergency, or if you're impatient, that's a problem. That's something we try to rectify with the Z-series spacesuits, which take advantage of improvements in materials and manufacturing processes to be more robust and operate at higher pressure so you don't need to pre-breathe. The EMU suit we've all seen normally runs at a little under a third of normal atmospheric pressure, which is 14 psi or 100 kilopascals. The Z-series runs at over half, 8.3 psi, as does the Mark III suit. We don't need to pre-breathe to pour nitrogen until pressure drops to a certain point, the magic 8.3 psi is sufficient to circumvent that so is ideal for suits since they leak less and we can use them sooner because we don't need to pre-breathe. Also it's actually rather hard to move in some spacesuits from higher internal air pressure, One of the reasons hard shell suits are nice, even though they are heavy and not flexible, is they leak less and they aren't essentially a balloon. It's not something you normally think of, but if you're wearing something flexible at a higher pressure than outside, every time you move you're finding a lot of gasses moving around and stretching at the fabric as you bend it. Think about trying to bend a hose while it's turned on, or crunch a soda can that isn't open yet. That's one reason skin tight suits, like MIT's Biosuit, which is elastic and compresses you to maintain pressure on the body, except at the helmet, are optimal for mobility if we can get them working well. You could potentially wear all but the helmet for prolonged periods and just don it if you need to go out. One reason skin tight suits are optimal for mobility, skin tight suits, like MIT's Biosuit, are elastic and compress you to maintain pressure on the body rather than relying on an envelope of air in the suit to do that. Getting out an airlock is a time-consuming process too, and the Z-Series I mentioned a moment ago seeks to circumvent that using the new suit port dock mechanism that lets you crawl from the vehicle into the suit and back out when you're done. While saving space, it actually has other advantages in environments like the Moon and Mars because the regolith soils there are corrosive and toxic, so you don't want them in your vehicle anyway. Besides delays from pre-breathing, donning spacesuits is hazardously time-consuming during an emergency, so a suit you can don very quickly, without help, and at full vehicle or habitat pressure, is essentially your ideal one so components able to self-seal reliably and without oversight is another of those areas future technology might help with a lot. Additional primary functions are temperature regulation, mobility, a communication system, and the waste elimination issue we discussed. Communication can be non-obvious, as a reminder you need a microphone and transmitter in a suit because there is no air to carry sound around you unless you touched helmets together and shouted. Nor can you use sign language very well in those suits as even if you have line of sight to signal someone, the mobility, especially in the gloves, tends to be very limited. Indeed astronauts often have very sore hands from just trying to do anything in those bulky gloves. The ability to introduce computers into equipment is obviously an advantage that needs no explaining, but controlling things inside a suit is quite difficult. Those bulky gloves make typing hard and result in very large buttons on devices in space. One of the ways of helping with that is incorporating things like electronic textiles for buttons, heads-up displays, and speech recognition software, and we see that in the eye suit, one of the other candidates for replacing the EMU. It is also lighter than many designs by incorporating materials like titanium, fiberglass, and graphite epoxy. Temperature can also be non-obvious. We get taught about space being a frozen ultra-cold place, but it mostly is not. Those suits can heat up quite fast in direct sunlight, as they can only get rid of heat by radiation. This is not true in an environment other than space, like the surface of Venus, and we'll come back to some methods for dealing with heat. For the moment it's just a reminder that some functions of spacesuits won't be necessary for extreme environment suits or alternatively include new necessary functions or the same ones but harder to deal with. Of the secondary functions for suit we have to solve problems like radiation and micrometeoroids, other matters of hygiene, as well as propulsion capability, the other half of the mobility issue besides dexterity, and of course duration so you can be in one and survive, or be comfortable. Comfort does matter a lot too not just as a nice addition to making more folks willing to wear one, but in terms of productivity and errors. If you saw our Giant Robots and Power Armor episode, you probably remember me mentioning that I always found the stifling heat of wearing body armor far worse than its weight, and it wasn't just from exhaustion. If you're itchy, and it's hard to scratch in such things, or nauseous or disoriented, or just generally distracted by your own gear, it represents a real hazard. It gets easier to make mistakes by distraction and fatigue, and your productivity in that thing, already slowed by mobility and dexterity issues, drops further from compensating for that added risk. There's also the low gravity concern on health. We wouldn't typically think of that as a problem since these are short term devices and you either are going back to a ship or station with just as low of gravity, in which case the problem isn't relieved but isn't really different in the suit, or it is just temporary as you are returning to a place with gravity, natural or artificial like a rotating habitat module. This amusingly is actually fairly easy to solve though, if you have to persist in a suit for a very long time. You could mount a winch and tether on the shoulders of such a suit and shoot it into something, like tossing a grapple around a beam and swinging around it to produce centrifugal force, or detach a piece of your gear on a tether, like a spent oxygen or supply tank, so you could spin around that way. It's hard to walk that way but you could sleep under spin gravity then, which would help. Similarly, if you're working on the outside of a rotating habitat drum and you tether to it you will get that spin-gravity effect, so you'd want to orient so it was above you so you didn't feel like you're hanging upside down and get blood rushing to your head, as you would if you were walking on the outside of the drum with magnetic boots. Fluids migrating around inside your body in low gravity is an issue too, one we mostly handle now through compression clothing to fight swelling. Fluids outside your body is another problem, humans sweat, a lot. It's actually one of our nicest adaptations that most animals don't have and why we can get away with a lot of long endurance activities without suffering heat stroke. Sweating out a liter of water during an hour of exercise would be fairly normal, and in a heavy suit, especially when getting hot, you need a way to clear that humidity and unfog your visor. One approach for that is to have something like an air conditioning vest, keeping you cool and condensing that moisture and ideally draining it away but that means you need radiators, big ones, so that you might look like you got a pair of bat wings. However, that also takes power and we have very bad batteries, even nowadays. Power can be maintained through a cable or beamed in, but you could also pump in air and coolant too and pump them out. Plus, a large radiating surface might do double duty as solar collectors. What you're pumping to and from might be mobile as well. It might be something like a rover or jet bike that was your main vehicle and which you were linked to by cables, but it might be various specialized drones that follow you around, detaching and resupplying from elsewhere as needed, and staying out of the way. In the Power Armor episode I mentioned how you might tend to be followed around by a posse of robots who carried around all your resupply or power generators, or even carried around your guns and you just directed the show. The same could apply here, you go out in a vehicle or on a vehicle with various drones and they do a lot of the work of keeping you alive without your attention or inconvenience. So a couple are carrying spare air tanks or hoses connected to air supplies and scrubbers, another is running around with a big shield keeping between you and the sun, supplying power via solar panels, others are running radar and feeding that info to you while watching for micrometeors and targeting them. One is possibly hooking up to remove bodily waste as needed and so on. These need not be high tech or smart, and I should certainly hope not for the toilet drone, since it takes a special level of sadism to give high intelligence to such a device. You could potentially do the same in a case like Venus, with a very well insulated suit that was connected by a hose to a big mobile coolant robot that trundled alongside you, but heat's not the only issue, you've got pressure too which is very high on Venus' surface so that suits need to be very strong. And that is generally going to mean very heavy and bulky, maybe too heavy or bulky even with super materials and artificial muscle fibers in the suit enhancing your strength. If you've ever seen the Star Trek animated series from the 1970s, you might remember they had personal force fields that let them beam down to places wearing just their normal uniform. We're not likely to ever get such force fields, but there's a concept there of importance. If you live on a spaceship, especially one that gets shot at a lot, you basically need a uniform you can wear around all the time that can serve as a very basic spacesuit for at least a few minutes. That's the general notion with skin tight suits or skin suits like the bio suit I mentioned earlier, though it's not light and should not be thought of as just some spandex catsuit. Such suits will generally have rigid ribs on them and ideally ones that could contract around you so you could basically hop in and have it hugged down on you. Potentially such suits might incorporate veins to carry coolant or heating to the body as needed, and some strap-on equipment like air tanks, though that sort of stuff starts adding mass and power needs. It doesn't necessarily need a big power supply. It might just have microwave power-absorbing antennas, rectennas, woven into it for soaking up wireless power, and a small battery and air tank for short durations of emergency. But if you can't make it very light, you can potentially weave in artificial muscle fibers to offset the mass. Although such technology is still in its infancy, artificial muscles are one of those technologies we can probably safely assume will get working well eventually and that will help with a lot of mass problems with suits, which generally weigh as much as the person inside them these days. The emphasis is on mass not weight, as while a ship might have spin gravity, in zero gravity you have no weight but you and everything you're wearing still has mass, which has to be pushed or pulled to move, and you will tire out very quickly in tons of gear, even without gravity. You probably also need some sort of rapidly assembling or inflating emergency helmet worked into the collar of such a suit that can automatically trigger in a pressure drop. Though you might get away with a helmet drone, you walk around with it strapped on your hip or flying near you and if it reads that pressure drop it zips over and locks onto your head as ferociously as one of the facehuggers from the Aliens franchise. A human can survive depressurization for a bit but drops unconscious almost immediately so it has to be automatic, but a blowout collar helmet or drone with a pressure sensor and maneuvering thrusters that just needs to lock on to a couple of clamps that might emit a positional signal needn't require much fancy tech or smart machines. A similar option might just be to have that drone carrying an inflatable balloon and a big mouth so it can open and swallow you in a pressurized cocoon for a bit though I suspect a collar that can inflate around your head would be most folks' preference. Of course speaking of collars, it's always possible a last-ditch protocol for spacesuits might be a collar that doesn't just inflate or fold out around your head, but right through your neck too. If you use sufficient technology a decapitation might be survivable and it's a lot easier to power life support for a lone head or freeze one, to be later slapped onto a cyborg chassis or clone body or similar. If you've just blown out a big tear on your ship from a bad accident or some other ship shooting at you, you're probably tumbling away at a fairly high speed, potentially tens or even hundreds of meters per second, in a situation in which nobody might be in position to help for some time, or at all. A lone head needs a lot less delta V to move it back or stop it flying further away, and way less power for life support or cooling, extreme but presumably better than death. I should also note, since micrometeoroids are a big concern, that a spacesuit with built-in auto tourniquets could be very handy too, for other limbs besides your head, which you normally can't tie tourniquets around. Well you can, but unless you have that advanced technology for restoring decapitation victims it's not a good idea. Speaking of micrometeoroids, you've probably heard of the Thermal Micrometeoroid Garment which is the outer layer of most spacesuits. It helps with heat loss, provides a radiation shield, and helps with very small micrometeoroids, which are the most common, that would cause pinprick leaks. In general, you can't really make something that will stop anything carrying bullet levels of energy because those are smaller than bullets and way faster, so they penetrate very well things like that are bigger, you can't armor a suit against. You can maybe have a point defense system that could shoot it down before it hits you, but if it does, the good news is it will leave a small hole through you and keep plowing through space, retaining most of its kinetic energy, hopefully, and if that doesn't hit a major organ or your brain, you're probably going to live and leak air slow enough to be able to slap patches on the holes in you and the suit before passing out. But flying heads and robot replacement bodies and micrometeoroids through squishy body parts brings up cybernetic augmentation, and that might be a much more popular path for future spacefarers than suits. It's quite possible we could get some materials that let you have a great skin suit that you could wear all the time that takes care of getting rid of your dead skin cells and other accretions and just on a bubble helmet for EVA, but what about a synthetic coating for your skin that just lets it be resistant to vacuum? Radiation shielding is nice too, and you could maybe build that into such a coating, but radiation is mostly a concern in space because of cancer, not short-term lethal doses, and if you got good cures for that, you maybe don't care as much about getting irradiated anyway. You still need air, but you actually might not. Needless to say, if you're sufficiently cyborg you might not need oxygen anyway, but if you had a machine that could convert water into oxygen implanted in your lungs and some sphincter in your throat or airtight seal in your lips and nose, you could just slap shut. Your body is mostly water, which is mostly oxygen by mass, and assuming you can eliminate the CO2, you only need around a pound or half a kilo of oxygen a day and you've got way more water than that in your body. Power is an issue, but once you start replacing existing organs with more compact or efficient stuff, you can go full-on inspector gadget, and something like an expandable or inflatable solar panel, worn in your clothes or tucked in some compartment of your body, might be quite the power generator. You could potentially eliminate a lot of the digestive system too, which would make a nice solution to the bathroom issues. But you might even be able to get away with housing things like a 3D printer in that cyborg body, or, assuming you've got plenty of power, wander around on some airless moon eating rocks, which are mostly made of oxygen themselves. See the Cyborgs episode for some other cool options, and we'll talk about survival options in space accidents and search and rescue in some weeks. Now of course that begs the question, if you're going that cybernetic, why not go full-on android? That's a brain in a jar, on a robot chassis, or an uploaded mind in a robot, not even necessarily human-shaped or sized. And certainly that would be way easier, especially in extreme environments. You can potentially make a suit that would let you fly around in the crushing pressure of Jupiter's atmosphere, or slog through lava on Venus or a volcano on Earth, or sit around on frigid Pluto or maybe even fly around the Sun's surface, But you'd almost always have an easier time with a larger vehicle with life support in it, or it tailored to survive that specific environment, like an android or giant walking lava-proof spider tank. Much of this depends on what materials you have of course, and to do a lot of these realistically, you'd need materials we're barely beginning to understand or aren't even on the radar yet, effectively clock Tech, and since folks have been asking, Yes, we will do an episode on super materials this year, those we've got, those we've got on the drawing board, and those that for now at least are only in the imaginations of sci-fi authors and might never be something we get, things which will never exist, the topic of our 200th episode special. But materials that are almost completely reflective to all frequencies of light could give you ships and even suits that let you fly close to the sun, even skimming it. Those that are basically thermally non-conductive might let you wade into deep dense hot lava. Those that are ultra-conductive to heat might let you do that by connecting you to a radiator a ways away and much larger that siphoned heat off you faster than it penetrated. Smart matter and nanotech, tiny little robots, might let you not just patch and repair suits near instantly and the person inside them but let you jump out through an airlock that was just a membrane of the stuff that wrapped around you to form a skin suit as you leapt through, like a soap bubble, or could rapidly manufacture you the survival gear including sophisticated devices for signaling for help or refining materials to use as your supplies that you needed to last till rescue or even build you that rescue ship. Needless to say, all such options, if we ever get them, are a long way off but worth considering. A lot of these options also have potential uses back home, same as we mentioned near the beginning that our spacesuits helped improve our firefighting gear and our other hazard suits. A suit you could comfortably wear in space almost all the time is one you can wear at home here on Earth too, and a lot of the features we discussed today would be handy here or have adaptations that would be. Again, hazardous environment suits are basically as old as humanity, right down to the first time we donned a hide or fur cloak or tunics or shoes. You need the right gear to protect you in dangerous places, but they're still dangerous, and as we mentioned earlier, one of the ways we might get around that in the future would be using android or cloned explorers, and we have a new video up on Nebula, me, myself, and I, cloning and duplicates that explores this and many other uses and challenges such technology might present in the future. If you'd like to catch that video on Nebula, or our other recent exclusive, the Butterfly Effect, you can get full access to Nebula for free when you sign up for CuriosityStream. So in addition to being able to see there are thousands of top-notch documentaries and non-fiction titles, like Packing for Mars, you can now also catch all the Nebula-exclusive content I and other education-focused channels have been making, if you sign up for a year subscription of CuriosityStream. A Year of CuriosityStream is just 1999 and it gets you access to thousands of documentaries as well as complimentary access to Nebula for as long as you're a subscriber, and use the link in this episode's description, CuriosityStream.com slash IsaacArthur. We started Nebula up as a way for education-focused independent creators to try out new content that might not work too well on YouTube. Where algorithms might not be too kind to some topics or demonetize certain ones entirely, and it's taken on a life of its own from the enthusiastic response of our audiences. And I'm very glad that we are partnering up with CuriosityStream as we get ready to invite in more creators and bring more content to Nebula. So now, in addition to all of CuriosityStream's great educational content, you'll be able to see videos from independent creators like CGP Gray, Minute Physics, Wendover and of course myself. Just remember to use the link in the video description when signing up. We were talking about how we might survive on Venus and its molten surface, but next week we'll look at how we might cool Venus down and terraform it into a livable place where you wouldn't need a spacesuit. as we discuss how to bring winter to Venus. But even if we terraform dangerous worlds to be more Earth-like, We'll still need space and survival suits and folks willing to don them to rescue other folks, and in two weeks we'll take a look at search and rescue operations, the technologies that will improve them, and some of the new dangers we might have to rescue people from. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to support the channel, you can visit our website to donate or just share the video with others. Until next time. Thanks for watching and have a great week!